We are looking at a pair of events in the Old Covenant calendar tonight. The Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. And we're looking at them together because like the previous two feasts, the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks, I'm confident that they go together and function as a pair, but unlike the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks, I also think we can handle them together in one night. Whereas I think the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks uh, each merited a sermon on their own. So tonight we're, we're going to look at this pair that, that go together, I believe. Notice that in Leviticus 23 and verse 24, we are told that the Feast of Trumpets is a memorial. A memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets. And John Gill says, what this blowing of trumpets was a memorial of is not easy to say. Now, normally I, I benefit greatly from John Gill, and I consult Gill almost every week when I'm preparing sermons. But with all due respect to Mr. Gill, I actually disagree with him strongly here. And I think it's quite easy to say, very easy to say, what the blowing of trumpets was a memorial of. All we have to do is look for the only place in the Bible that trumpets appeared prior to Leviticus 23. There's only one place, which gives it away. What is the only place that trumpets appear prior to the institution of the Feast of Trumpets in Leviticus 23? Search your memory, Christians. I'll give you a second. The answer is that the only place that trumpets appear prior to Exodus, or prior, oh, there we go, Freudian slip. <laughs> the only place that trumpets appear prior to Leviticus 23 is in Exodus 19 and 20 at Sinai. On the occasion of the giving of the law, Listen to Exodus 19, 16 to 20, and Exodus 20 and verse 18. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai. To the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up Exodus 20 and verse 18 now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off so 
If the only place that we read about trumpets prior to the institution of the Feast of Trumpets in Leviticus 23 is what I just read for you, the trumpet sounding as God comes down to Sinai and gives the Ten Commandments, and given the fact that that's a huge, momentous occasion in the life of the Israelites, it, it, actually, it actually is their very constitution as a nation when God brings them into the Old Covenant with Him and gives them His law. Since it's such a momentous event, and since it's the only occasion that we read about trumpets prior to the institution of the Feast of Trumpets in Leviticus 23, it actually is quite easy to say what the blowing of trumpets was a memorial of in the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets was a memorial of the reception of God's law at Sinai. And therefore, the theological significance of the Feast of Trumpets is that the Feast of Trumpets reminded the Israelites of their duty to the law. Of course, the Israelites were expected to obey the Ten Commandments all the time. There was no special season in which they were exempt, nor was there a special season in which they were especially responsible to obey the Ten Commandments. Now, some people at Lent try to give up sin. Well, listen, you're supposed to give up sin all year round. And I think it's just, I think it's just poorly worded, but even um, this, this is just coming to me now. Uh, so I don't have it written down, I didn't do the research. I think it's the Heidelberg Catechism, maybe. How do we honor the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day? And one of, the, one of the things it says is we cease from sin. Well, we're supposed to cease from sin Monday to Saturday too. I think, I think the framers knew that and it's just poorly worded. But sometimes this concept gets into our thinking that there are special seasons where we got to obey God. And we're especially responsible to obey God on Sundays and at Lent. And this kind of thinking is, is, of course, foreign to biblical theology. The Old Covenant Israelites, and, and we today, we're, we're responsible to God all the time. There's no season where we're exempt from our responsibility to obey God. There's no day of the week or days of the week where we're less responsible. And likewise, um, there is no season in which we are more responsible to obey God. Those things go hand in hand. So the Feast of Trumpets wasn't the end of a season of lawlessness where now it's like, oh yeah, yeah, the Feast of Trumpets and a special devotion to the law of God. Nor, well, really that's just both sides of the coin right there. The Feast of Trumpets wasn't the end of a season of lawlessness, nor was it the beginning of a season of obedience. But the way it functioned in the Old Covenant calendar was as a provider of an occasion to reflect on one's obligation to the law of God and to examine one's own diligence or negligence, success or failure in the pursuit of holiness. 
The Feast of Trumpets provided an opportunity to remind oneself of God's awesome and fearful holiness. To be a memorial of the smoking and trembling Mount Sinai. Of the trumpet sounding loudly as the Lord descends on the mountain and calls Moses up to receive the commands of God. The Feast of Trumpets was an opportunity in the annual calendar to remember, to call to mind the thunder and the lightning, and to recall that Yahweh is not to be trifled with, and that His commands are not to be taken lightly. Now, if there was a period in the New Covenant calendar which was set aside for such reflection. And there is not one such season mandated in Scripture. Lent is simply a man-made invention. But let's take Lent for example. And let's say that in the season of Lent, somebody spent time reflecting soberly on God's law and God's holiness and on one's own obedience or disobedience to God and their success or their failure in the keeping of God's commandments, to what would such reflection lead? The answer is discouragement and hopelessness. God's law is called the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7. For though God promised Israel blessedness in the keeping of it, God threatened curses for the breach of it. So it is that as Galatians 3.10 says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. And do them. Was the law bad then? If it's called the ministry of death and it leads to our cursing? Was the law bad then? No. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12, The law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Perish the thought that the law is bad. Perish the thought that we would be blessed to not be obligated to do God's holy and righteous and good commandments. The law is good. The law is a gift to us. The law is a transcription of what a good life looks like. The law is a transcription of God's holy and righteous and good character. The law is good. There is no problem with the law. But since we are sinners, our obedience to God's law is always lacking. Which means that we're always liable not to the blessings of law keeping, but to the curses of law breaking. And therefore, the Israelites' reflection on his obedience to God's law every year at the Feast of Trumpets, as it was a season of 
commemorating and memorializing God's holiness. God's awesome holiness. The old word is awful. Full of awe. We tend to think of awful as a negative term. But it used to be actually a term which reverenced God. We used to say that God is an awful God. God is a God who is full of, or or before whom we ought to be full of awe. Every year as the Israelite reflected on the fact that the mountain smoked and trembled at the presence of God. As he memorialized that awful experience of his ancestors at the foot of the mountain. As the thunder pealed and as the lightning struck and as the trumpets sounded. They couldn't reproduce the thunder and lightning at will, could they? Nor could they reproduce the mountain smoking or trembling where they could reproduce the trumpets. So they were to call to mind this whole awful experience. The Israelites' reflection on the giving of the law and his own responsibility to it, thinking about the past year and how he had done in keeping God's commandments, this would only lead to discouragement and hopelessness. And this is where the Day of Atonement comes in. Ten days after the Feast of Trumpets each year, the Day of Atonement reminded the Israelites of God's provision of grace. If we look back at Leviticus 23, the Lord spoke to Moses in verse 23 and 24, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, seventh month, first day of the month, You shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets. And then down to verse 27. Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. So the Lord left the Israelites to think about His glory and His holiness and their unworthiness. And the the disparity between the God who comes down to the top of the mountain and causes it to smoke and tremble. And the Israelites at the base of it who are not holy enough to come up. God leaves them to think on this for ten days. And then they observe the Day of Atonement where they are reminded that God provides grace. And we've dealt with the Day of Atonement and I've referenced it several times in my preaching before so we won't go into an elaborate study of it again tonight. But I just want to remind you of the three main phases of the ritual that took place in the tabernacle that day. First, the priest makes atonement for himself and his house. That's in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 10 to 14. Next, the priest makes atonement for the people and for their holy place via the sin offering. 
that's in Leviticus 16, verses 15 to 19. And then the priest makes atonement for the people via the live goat, which is turned over to Azazel. Leviticus 16, verses 20 to 22. In that first phase, the priest makes atonement for himself because even the high priest, figuratively, the holiest man in Israel, is not holy enough. But God has provided atonement for him. And then in the second phase, the priest makes atonement for the holy place. Figuratively, the holiest place in Israel. Because it is not holy enough. But God has provided atonement for the holy place. And then the priest makes atonement for the people. Symbolically, providing both propitiation and expiation for their sin. Let me expand on that a little bit. Propitiation is the diverting of God's wrath away from us. And so the priest confessed the sins of the people of Israel and placed them symbolically on an animal who died in the place of the people of Israel. Thus propitiating God's wrath, diverting God's wrath away from the people towards the animal. And that animal died in their place as their propitiation. And then the priest confesses the sins and symbolically places them on another animal. And that animal goes outside the camp and carries away the sins from the people. This is represents to us the concept of what theologians call expiation. Which is that our, our sin, our guilt, our defilement, our dirtiness is taken away from us. So one animal dies bearing the wrath of God for sin. And the other animal takes the dirtiness and the defilement of sin and leaves and removes it from the people. Propitiation and expiation are both included in the rituals of the Day of Atonement so that the people can see that though the holiest man is not holy enough, though the holiest place is not holy enough, and therefore the common Israelites and the people as a whole, He is not holy enough and they are not holy enough. Nevertheless, God has given propitiation and expiation to His people. God has poured out His wrath on a substitute so that He doesn't have to pour His wrath on the people themselves. And God has taken the dirtiness and the defilement of the people's sin and removed it from them. Atonement. This twofold atonement. These two aspects, propitiation and expiation, both enfolded and enclosed in this larger category of atonement. Atonement is made for God's people. Atonement is provided for God's people. So after meditating on the giving of the law at Sinai for 10 days every year, thinking about their own sin and their own defilement, their dirtiness, their guilt, their liability to the curses of the law and God's wrath, after meditating on these things for 10 days, now they meditate on God's grace. Now they meditate on the provision that God has made 
for their sins to be propitiated, for their sins to be, for them to be expiated. Sorry, I said that wrong. Listen, it's not their sin that's propitiated. It's, it's God who is propitiated. And it's not their sin which is expiated. It's, it's them who are expiated. You see, it is God's wrath which is diverted or propitiated. And expiation means cleansing. And so it's not like the sin is cleansed. It's the people that are cleansed. So God is propitiated. The people are expiated. All of this is wrapped up in atonement. So after meditating on God's law for 10 days, then there's an event in the calendar which causes them to meditate on God's gospel. And so you see again, God's law and God's gospel working together in Old Covenant symbolism. We've seen it several times in this Old Covenant series. Perhaps most notably in the Ark of the Covenant. Where inside the Ark are the tablets on which is written the law. And then on the cover is the mercy seat. Where atonement is made for the people on the Day of Atonement. Again, we see in the calendar the Feast of Trumpets, which is basically a reminder of the law, and then the Day of Atonement, which is a reminder of the Gospel. Again, the law and the Gospel working together. So though we don't keep the Old Covenant calendar, we're not obligated to keep the Feast of Trumpets, nor is there a Day of Atonement anymore. In fact, if we were to slaughter an animal once a year to propitiate God's wrath and to expiate ourselves, it would be blasphemous. Though we don't keep the Old Covenant calendar, we ought to learn what is taught us theologically in the Old Covenant calendar. We know that the law is good. As Paul says, in Romans, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. If the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, then what are these Christians on about who are like, oh, the law? Man, that was then. This is now. Well, what are we doing? What are we doing if we're not doing holiness and righteousness and goodness? You see, if, if the law is holy and righteous and good, even just if you just grant that, which is an explicit statement of Scripture, then you have to say, well, then really we sh still should be obligated to it if it's holy and righteous and good. And throughout the New Testament, as well as the Old, it's assumed that we are obligated to keep God's Ten Commandments. And yet, as it was in the Old Covenant, so it is in the New. They couldn't keep it perfectly and perpetually and thus merit or deserve God's blessedness. And neither can we. And so still, it's true, we read in Galatians, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So we don't rely on our law-keeping. 
just as the Israelites of old should not have relied on their law keeping, but just as they were nevertheless obligated to it, so we are still obligated to it. And we ought to have periods of reflection, whether it's a sermon that you hear on the law of God, or, or whether it's a sermon you hear on a specific aspect of the law of God, or whether it's in your personal devotions as you read the commands of God. You ought to have periods of time where you reflect and you think, am I honoring God with my life? Am I living obediently? And what that will lead to, if it is only that, just as it led the people of old, or would have led the people of old, only to discouragement and hopelessness, so it will do to you if you only do that. But you still should do that. Because it will keep you, or make you in the first place, humble before God. It will, it will rob you of any perceived self-righteousness. It will help you realize that you need to go as the fellow did in Luke 18 to the temple, so to speak, and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Meditating on God's law and your guilt is going to help keep you from being like those who at the beginning of Luke 15 we read about them that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Meditating on God's law will help you have, it, it will give you an accurate bank account statement for your soul. So that you're not going to think you got more in the account than you do. And it's helpful to know that. Just as you need to keep track of your money, your assets, in a literal sense. Likewise, you need to keep track of your assets in a spiritual sense. And if you're literally bankrupt, then you shouldn't trust in your own self-sufficiency. Likewise, if you realize that your spiritual account is empty, you're not going to trust in your self-sufficiency. So, you shouldn't rely on works of the law, nor should you only meditate on the law and only just be condemned by the law and let the meditation on the law lead you to despair and hopelessness. You should have seasons of reflection on God's law. You should keep a feast of trumpets of sorts. Maybe day by day in your morning devotions or, or, or thinking about your sin and your shortcomings as you, as you listen to preaching on God's holiness and on God's law or whatever. Keep the feast of trumpets in your heart, if you want to put it that way. But look, don't stay there long. Just as on the heels of the Feast of Trumpets in the Old Covenant calendar was the Day of Atonement. You need to keep a Feast of Trumpets in your heart, so to speak. But very quickly, you need to get to the Day of Atonement. This is how God set it up. Yes, there is reflection on God's law and God's holiness in your own shortcomings. Remember that God's at the top of the mountain and you're at the bottom. But very quickly, you need to get to the Day of Atonement. And of course we know that the animals which provided propitiation and expiation 
they foreshadowed and signified Christ Jesus who was to come. We know from the book of Hebrews that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, those animals did not actually provide propitiation and expiation. They were merely symbolic of God's provision. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, John the Baptist says that well-known phrase, Ah, behold, now I see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who actually propitiates God's wrath. The one who actually expiates us of our sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of the symbolism of the Day of Atonement. And so there is the Feast of Trumpets, that meditation on the law. But very quickly after that is the Day of Atonement in the Old Covenant calendar. Likewise, there is a place for keeping a Feast of Trumpets in our hearts. Remembering God's holiness. Remembering our our spiritual and moral bankruptcy, our shortcomings. Considering that we may not go up the mountain on our own merits. But that there is a separation because of our sin between us and God. We need to remember these things. We, we, as it says in Romans, let no one think of himself more highly than he ought. Keeping a feast of trumpets in our hearts regularly will remind us and help us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But we ought to go quickly from keeping a feast of trumpets in our hearts to keeping a day of atonement in our hearts and remembering the gospel of God where Jesus came to be our propitiation and our expiation.